private journey with Jesus is just the beginning. Connecting with others intensifies our light. Together we bring hope to the world. Christ, you, me, Cola. Philippians chapter 3, which is perhaps one of the most important books uh, for me when I think of the Bible. And in this chapter um, that we're looking at, Paul is writing to his dear friends, um, a special church that he really loves. He's writing from prison, probably in Rome, and he's warning the Philippians about two groups of people. And he's worried that either one of these groups is going to lead the Philippians astray. So at the start of Philippians, uh, sorry, chapter 3, Paul is worried about the Judaizers. Now, these people believe that you have to still keep all of the Jewish law to attain righteousness with God, okay? Now, righteousness is a big deal in the Bible, right? It's It's a word that we see quite often Um, But it's important to remind us what it means. Righteousness is essentially right standing before God. And so whenever the Israelites were obedient under the law, they came under God's blessing and life went really well because they were right before God. But whenever they looked over the fence and decided that the rest of the world had a better life than them and they disobeyed the law, they stepped outside of that blessing and life went bad. And so Paul is concerned about these Philippians, sorry, these these people over here in this camp, saying you have to still meet all of the Jewish requirements, all of the law, in order to get righteousness, in order to get right standing before God. Now the big problem with this is that these people believed in man's own ability to meet that law. And the problem, again, with that is not only is that a hyperinflated uh, estimation of our ability, but it leads to competition and it leads to pride. Because when you believe that you've got it in you to climb this ladder, to climb above other people, to be better than other people, it starts to become about you and not about God. And Paul is saying, Philippians, watch out for these dogs, these evil workers. Why? Because we have no confidence in the flesh, i.e. we have no confidence in our ability to meet that law. And he says, I was once the best in the game. I was the Peter Burling of Christianity, of, sorry, of law keeping. But I count all of that as loss. I count my position as loss. Why? Because Christ has come down and he has given me that righteousness for free so that I no longer have to earn that, but I receive it by grace. I wonder if you and I uh, can relate to the pious perfectionists and that mindset that tells us, hey, you're not doing enough. You're not committed enough. And it's this voice of guilt, of shame that drives us, thinking that we have to somehow climb this big ladder up to God. 
And it's sort of strangely enticing, isn't it? Sort of an attractive mindset to have because, yeah, if I think I can climb this ladder to God and I can do all these great works, then you end up sort of feeling really good about yourself because you have all the self-belief in your ability. And it sort of leads to this idea that, oh, I'm better than everyone else. I'm a better Christian. I'm more committed. I'm more hardcore. So Paul is writing to the Philippians saying, watch out for the pious perfectionists. Don't listen to their rubbish. Don't buy their story. But, but there is another crowd that you need to be aware of. And instead of running for righteousness and pride, they are running in quite the other direction. These guys are the lost libertarians. That Paul says, if you follow these guys, you're going to end up in big trouble too. Let's, let's see what he says about them. Dear brothers and sisters, pattern your lives after mine and learn from those who follow our example. For I've tof- told you often before, and I say it again with tears in my eyes, that there are many whose conduct shows that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. They are headed for destruction. Their God is their appetite. They brag about shameful things, and they think only about this life here on earth. Now, Paul doesn't tell us if these people are within the Philippians, in the Philippi church, or if they're outside. But let's just run through this passage uh, that he talks about with the lost libertarians. So the first thing he says is that they are the enemies of Christ or the cross of Christ. So perhaps they don't believe in Jesus or what he did. Perhaps they never um, wanted to. Perhaps once they were Christians, but they found the life of being a Christian too difficult. They have made their stomach, their stomach and their appetites their God. Now, I don't think Paul's saying if you enjoy a good feed of Maccas, you've got a problem. Um, Who here loves Maccas? I certainly do. But he's saying if you're making your God your appetite in your stomach, you're focusing not on the things of God. Yes, food is from God, but if that is all that you care about, you're missing the bigger picture. Their glory and their shame. Who here um, has been to a really, uh, really great 21st, but listened to a really, really bad 21st speech? Few of us, yeah? You know the sort of speech that goes, oh yeah, our mate Johnny once got so drunk and crashed his car and lost his job and knocked up a few women and all this sort of stuff, but isn't he the man? You know, and it's like, it's even worse when you hear that story at a wedding in front of uh, you know, the bride's family. But there's this almost this sense that people's shame can be turned into their glory. The last thing, their minds are set on earthly things. Again, this is about their perspective. They are only focusing about short-term things, their comfort perhaps. They're not concerned with the work of God or with the kingdom of God. And so if the fault of the pious perfectionists over here is that they believe that they can attain righteousness and perfection, the fault of the lost libertarians is that they have thrown out the desire for righteousness 
all together. And so we have the Philippians in the middle between these two groups of people. And Paul is saying, watch out for both of these camps. You don't want to fall in with either of these crowds. And it's sort of difficult when we read this because it's easy to admire both sides. On one hand, we look at the pious perfectionists and we say, well, I really admire the fact that they're trying to attain to righteousness. You know, because that is a good thing. It's just that they have the wrong motivation and the wrong method. Well, we come over here to the libertarians and we sort of admire them too because we don't like to think of our faith as a whole set of rules and regulations of do's and don'ts. And so when we sit here, we can sort of be caught in the same sort of tension. And also at times, it's easy to read the Bible uh, think, is Paul contradicting himself? You know, he writes a lot about the libertarians. He writes a lot about, uh, you know, don't sleep with your mother, uh, don't take your brother to court, don't abuse the Lord's Supper, don't do this, you should do this, your marriage should look like this, uh, this is how women are supposed to be in church, plugged for your talk tonight. All of these things, and you sort of think, well, Paul, are you just substituting this law for a new law? How do we sort of balance that? How do we make sense of that? I think it's important to realize that the problem with the Old Testament law is not that it was bad. In fact, it was very good. It helped the Israelites live well, and it helped them uh, be closer to God. The problem with the Old Testament law is that it just simply didn't work. You know, as Paul says, we have no confidence in the flesh. We could never keep the law because we are weakened by our sinful nature. We could never meet the bar set by the law. So Jesus came down, he forgave us, and he gave us his presence as a gift, and he gave us our righteousness as a gift. But all of that so that we can still pursue a good life with God, a good life, that sort of God-glorifying life. So I don't think Paul is laying down a new law, so to speak, but saying that we now have the spirit within us that helps us, that enables us, that invites us and inspires us to live for God. So we, like the Philippians, are stuck perhaps at times between these two crowds of people, the pious perfectionists and the lost libertarians. And what does Paul offer us by way of help? How does he help us and how did he help the Philippians have the right perspective? Well, we uh, read on. I'm just going to skip that. But we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives and we're eagerly waiting for him to return as our saviour. He will take our weak mortal bodies and change them into his glorious body, into glorious bodies like his own, using the same power with which he brings everything under his control. Citizens of heaven. So Paul helps the Philippians by reminding them of their identity and their hope. And his use of the word citizenship 
is not by accident. It's an intentional political dig. You see, about 50 years prior, the Philippian uh, city was made a colony of Rome. There was a civil war, and um, Philippi supported one of the rulers, Octavian, and as a reward for supporting him, uh, he gave them citizenship. And this is a big deal, right? This is being a citizen of Rome has some great perks. Firstly, you have the right not to be tortured. Fantastic. Secondly, you have the right not to be crucified. Getting better. Thirdly, you have all the protection of the law of Rome. You can vote in assemblies. You can do all sorts of things. It's a bit like um, in New Zealand's Coral Club. Um, it's, it's a membership that gives you all these perks. And it's sort of just as the businessmen walk past us plebs in the terminal waiting for our plane as they're off to get their free beer and champagne, so too would citizens of Rome walk past the non-citizens of Rome and think, you can, you're down there and I am up here. I have a special status. So when Paul is saying, you're citizens of Rome, uh, sorry, of heaven, he's really saying, hey, you think that being part of this great empire uh, is great. You think the right not to be tortured is great. Um, take your perspective from here to here because we belong to a bigger kingdom, a better world. And not only do we belong to this, this is your identity. This is who you are. So when Paul is writing to the Philippians in between these two groups of people, he helps them by reminding them of who they are, of their identity. And I think that's a really helpful uh, thing that we can hang on to for us today when we're in the same boat, when we are stuck between different cultures or different temptations of thought to remember who we are in Christ. I think many of you are going to have a story like this, but I, um, when I was a kid, I had this best friend. Let's call him Ryan the sake of it. And um, Ryan and I, were, we were tight. We hung out together. We went to church together. Um, we played sport together. And I sort of idolized him because he was much better than me at sport, um, as most of my mates were. Um, he was smarter than me, which wasn't hard. And um, he was like uber serious about faith. And I just, I was just in awe of him. He would come over. He would open up the Bible. We would read. We would pray. Um, and, you know, we're about this big. Um, and then we kind of moved in school to that cool phase. Um, who's been through the cool phase? I never made the cut. Um, I was just always the, the geek phase. Um, and he changed. And he came over once for a party that I was having with all my mates. And his pants were down to here. His hair had all this um, gel in it. He was using words I'd never heard of. He was trying to roll cigarettes in the kitchen made from tea bags. And I was just like, who are you, man? You're not my mate Ryan. You're someone else. And, and there's this feeling of, I don't know who you are. Or you've forgotten who you really are because you're not that same awesome guy that I used to hang out with. You're just a tosser now. And uh, 
Fortunately, that was a really uh, short-lived phase, and um, I caught up with him a couple of years ago, and, uh, and he's awesome. Um, still better than me at pretty much everything. Um, but I think when we read Paul, I think Paul is trying to get to this point where we're never going to go through that phase of falling in with the libertarians. We're not going to go through that phase of puffing ourselves up on our own ego. He's reminding us of who we are. And I think at times for us in the 21st century, that can be a bit difficult because we like to decide who we are. We like to decide to whom we belong. You know, I was, um, I was flying from Sydney to Perth once and I started talking to the lady next to me who was this Australian businesswoman and we got onto the topic of philosophy and morality, as you do. Um, but it got a bit awkward because she, she's one of these Australians that didn't have an inside voice, um, let alone an inside plane voice. And so our whole discussion on the, the meaning of life was being broadcasted through the whole plane. Um, but, uh, you know, you take chances. And she said something that I will never forget because... It typifies the thinking of our age today. She said, yes, I believe in truth. I do. But we all have our own truth. We decide what that is, and no one has the right to challenge it. Who's heard that before? Now, I think you and I are for tolerance. It's a good thing. But this thinking gets a little bit dangerous um, as a Christian, because God has given us our identity, and we, in a sense, are called to submit to that. Now, I've got this, this friend who's decided what her truth is. And she sort of said, nah, organized church and religion, it's not for everyone, and I think God's cool with that, so I'm going to give up on that. Uh, this relationship, it's not probably what it's supposed to be, but I asked God about it and he didn't get back to me, so um, I'm assuming he's cool with it. And yeah, this lifestyle, it's not what my other Christian mates are doing, but they're way too serious about their faith. So you know what? I'm going to decide my own way. I'm going to decide my own truth. And it really leads to a funny place. And I think when we read Philippians, Paul is saying, no, you think being citizens of Rome or you think being citizens of this world in which you can just choose whoever you want to be or whatever you're going to do, you think that is good? Take your perspective from here and move it to here. Well, if remembering our identity and to whom we belong is um, the way that Paul helps the Philippians, what does he say about our hope? What's it all worth? What are we doing all of this for? I want to reread perhaps one of the most powerful passages in my mind. Uh, and that's 20, this is 20, 21, chapter 3. And we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our saviour. He will take our weak, mortal bodies and changed them into glorious bodies like his own, using the same power with which he will bring everything under his control. 
these bodies that hurt, these bodies that decay, these bodies uh, that don't do the things that they're supposed to, that lose their hair, we will be raised up new again. What do you hope for? It's May 1940, and the Nazis are invading France. Hitler is seeking to subdue the country and include it as part of the Third Reich. It's going to be the third golden era of Germany. Within a few months, villages all throughout northern France are being overrun by the might of this Nazi army. They are organized, they are powerful, and they are vicious. One by one, little villages throughout the countryside are being taken captive by these foreign men who wear different clothes, who speak a different language, and who eat different food. They sit up in your small village. They are always watching you, questioning you, searching you for any signs of resistance. They control you and they control your village. They control the food supply, how much electricity you use and how late you can stay out. Any resistance to this oppressive force is brutally squashed. Last week, the local butcher refused to give a Nazi an extra cut of meat and was shot. Your cousin was caught sending messages to British forces and was hung. Certain members of your community have disappeared overnight without explanation. The enemy is brutal, oppressive, and will not be defeated. One month goes by, six months, a full year, two years, three years. You enter the fourth year of oppressive occupation. You feed your family on scraps because meat is a luxury. And the Nazis down the road are dining on steak most nights and drinking the town's pub dry. And the war rages on over Europe. And in your village, buildings have been blown apart, streets ripped up, schools barely in operation, people in hiding, people are pessimistic and scared. Four years and people have changed. The butcher's wife has now sided with the Nazi captains, giving them the best cuts of meat and spying on her own neighbours. She herself is rewarded with more portions of flour and cartons of milk. Her family are well fed and mostly safe. Many others of your village have done the same. You see, it's just too hard, too dangerous, too impossible to overthrow the enemy, and so they join them. They now associate with the Nazis. They're seen helping the Nazis fix their cars and shine their shoes. It's getting hard to tell the enemy apart from those who you used to spend Sunday lunch with. And these people who have forgotten who they belong to, they've forgotten their citizenship. They're not citizens of the Nazis, they're citizens of France. They're citizens of freedom and peace, not a dictatorship, not war. They don't belong to a country of fine beer and fine sausages. They belong to a country flowing with butter and cream, of champagne, Bordeaux, 
of crepes, profiteroles, berenets, and hollandaise. Can I get an amen? <laughs> they are not Nazis. They are French. But the cost of their citizenship is just too high. They have made their God their bellies. They think of only short-term comforts. They've forgotten who they are and who they belong to. But not all of the village has become Nazi sympathisers. The local electrician, the baker and the pig farmer have formed a secret resistance party. They meet in a cellar late at night to discuss how they're going to cause trouble to the Nazis. Last week, the baker crept out and set fire to a Nazi barracks. Uh, Today, the electrician cut the Nazi communications line and the pig farmer is making homemade explosives to blow up a train track that goes past his property. It carries troops to the front line. It's a risky exercise. It's dangerous. And the consequences are fatal. But these little pockets of resistance throughout France, they're not going to win a war. They'll help, but the enemy is too large, too sophisticated, and too clever. But it's now Sunday, 6th of May, 1945. News comes to you that changes everything. Last year, the largest amphibious invasion in history occurred on the beaches of Normandy. The Yanks have finally got off their butts and joined the war. The Nazis have been retreating. And there is a rumour that in a small hall somewhere in rural France, the most powerful leaders of the world are meeting to witness the surrender of the enemy. France is on the cusp of liberation. Soon an army will arrive that will kick out the Nazis. They will rebuild schools. They will repave the streets. People will celebrate. Families will be reunited. Tables will be full of food and glasses full of champagne. And the streets full of dancing. You can't wait for the war to be over. But Sunday the 6th is a funny day. Yeah, the war is certainly won, but the enemy is still in your streets. Freedom is coming, but it is not here yet. A time of abundance is coming, but your pantry is still empty. You live in a world of now, but not yet. Victorious now, but free, not yet. You see, what I love about chapter 3 of Philippians is that Paul is writing to a people who are caught between two worlds. And they are in a time of now, but not yet. They are in a time where righteousness has been given but the fullness of the kingdom has not yet fully come. And to the resistance fighters, to the pious perfectionists, Paul is saying, this war that you could never win on your own has been won for you. This righteousness that you have tried to attain by climbing the ladder of the Jewish law has been taken away. 
because Christ has come down. He has won your salvation for you. And we have his presence as a gift. And the same power that won your righteousness is just around the corner. And it will put all things back together again. And to the sympathizers, the lost libertarians, Paul is saying, keep focused on who you are. Don't forget that you're citizens of heaven. And these short-term comforts, these extra cartons of milk and flour by, that you get from compromising on who you are, you think that's worth it? No. Keep focused. Keep, keep remembering that you are citizens of heaven. You belong to a better world and the same power that won the war is coming. And it's going to put all the broken things back together again. Just want to invite the, the band out. But um, church, I think we too live in a time of now but not yet. A time where we are offered righteousness. We are offered the presence of, the, of God within our hearts. We have that now. But we're still in a world that is, uh, to some degree, oppressed by sin. A world in which we attempted to compromise who we are and let the world rub off on us. And where we might forget that we are sons and daughters of God. So I want us, as we read Philippians, as we think about it this week, to celebrate in our righteousness and that that has been won for us. We no longer have to fight. And remember who we are, that we are citizens of heaven. But most importantly, to crack the champagne, to celebrate and to take hope in what is coming just around the corner. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what you did on that cross. The way that you have freely given us grace and the way that you have freely given us your presence. And it's not because of how many laws we've kept during the week or what we've done, but only by your grace. So Lord, we just ask that your spirit strengthens our minds and our hearts. Father, that we would never lose sight of who we are in you. Father, that we would forever take hope in the liberation that will come in full when you come back. So be with us this week. Amen.